Welcome everybody to the Enneagram Journey Podcast with the Enneagram Godmother, Suzanne Stabile. I think each week I might try a new flattering nickname for her. We'll see what sticks. Uh, She earns it this week because the topic of our episode today is the Enneagram and Repressed Centers, which is part of Enneagram stance work, which as she says, is the hidden gem of Enneagram work and of growing with your Enneagram number. What kicks this episode off is a question that was sent in, so please, everyone keeps sending in questions, we sure do love them. And if you're wanting to dive deeper, visit lifeinthetrinityministry.com because Suzanne has teaching for each number on how to develop that repressed center, so which is a little bit more extensive than what we are going to have on today's show. For any of the Repressed Center MP3 downloads, you can use the promo code PODCAST at checkout, and that'll give you 50% off. Uh, that's for the entire month of June. So we hope you enjoy the show, and hope it helps you to, to grow. Hi, my name is Travis, and I resonate with Enneagram Type 1, the improver, the reformer, the perfectionist. I've heard you say that Type 1s have repressed thinking. Initially, I objected strongly to that statement because I think all the time. But you clarified that the problem is not that I don't think, but that my thinking is ineffective. Um, Thanks to my inner critic, I have all sorts of conversations and thoughts in my head 24-7, but I can get stuck and not think very well. What can I do about this? How can I learn to think more effectively? I'm also a verbal processor, so I naturally bounce ideas off of others, especially my wife. Uh, I think this helps me to clarify my thoughts. Is this a good strategy for thinking better? So that was a great question. And just like when we had the Orientation to Time podcast, even though we've talked about it some, you've talked about it in different teaching, it really opened up a conversation and got people looking at that aspect in their life. You talk about repressed centers a lot and talk about stances a lot. So what I was thinking is that you can address this, you start with ones and address kind of what for each number, the bullet points of what's repressed and why it's repressed because people hear it and there's always a little bit of pushback, even from people who know darn well. And for people who it does take some time to get to it, but once it happens and once there's the understanding, then you can't unsee it. And then also for each number, then like he says, he, so he says that he verbally processes and that's, that's a very stance thing for one Susan sixes earlier today. You started talking in the kitchen and I was like, I don't, she's not even looking for a response right here. She's just talking about <laughs> talking about things. So you don't need to chime in. <laughs> just let her talk. Yeah. But uh, talk to what is just a tool or a way to bring it up or a way to, to work with it for each number. Does that sound good? Sounds great. Okay. All right. So we'll talk about ones, twos, and sixes first because they're in the same stance. To back up just a little bit, there are three centers that we're working with in their thinking and feeling and doing. Ones, twos, and sixes are in the dependent stance, and they're thinking repressed, and none of them like it. 
So Travis, uh, twos and sixes feel exactly like you do. They also believe they think all the time. And that's because all of you do think all the time. The question is, do you think productively? And the answer is generally, no, you don't. And you have to do things to learn to do that. So ones think uh, primarily about the conversation that they're having with the inner critic because it goes on all throughout the day, um, except when you're sleeping. And that conversation with a voice that nobody else hears is not productive thinking. It's defensive commentary so that you're constantly defending yourself against all the criticism that you're receiving. One of the things that you could do to um, learn to manage that voice better, you're always going to have it. So you, you just got to wrap your arm around that voice. I encourage everybody to give the voice a name because you need to be able to tell that voice to shut up and it's easier to do that if you've named it. But be careful when you name it because you can't be effective if you change the name and all that. You just need one name that you're going to go with and pick it based on whatever criteria you want to use. So you have to find a way to quiet the voice. There are a number of practices that will help with that, but there are a number of practices that counter the voice too and that help you think more productively. So one example is it will help you if you will read people that you disagree with. It will help you if you um, listen to a news channel that supports one side or the other politically to listen to the opposite news channel. It helps you to learn to think through different points of view without having to have one be right, one be wrong, one be correct, one be incorrect. There are also practices that you can do um, if you're Christian. You can use prayer beads, which are very, very helpful to help quiet the voices. I encourage um, people who are ones to begin conversations with other people when their voices are really beating them up. One of the things I've heard you suggest a lot is for the the partner of a one, the friend of a one, the spouse of a one, at the end of the day, give them 20 minutes. You probably say 30. I think I shortened it to 20 for my I do say personal. 30. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you you I, don't I, get to shorten I, your I cheat one out of ten right, minutes, right? Um, so blank amount of time for them to talk and and verbalize and get the day out, and then just to listen to that and yeah. not don't be helpful, which is my inclination. Um, at the end of the day, just sit down with your one and give them time to verbally process the day. Is another thing. Morning pages, is that something that you that said That is for a real good one, so let me talk about that. Uh, Julia Cameron wrote a book f mostly for people who are creative, who are, uh, it's called The Artist's Way, where she talks about practices for writers who are stuck and things like that. And it's called Morning Pages, and I co-opted Morning Pages and changed the exercise a little bit for Enneagram Ones. And it's good for other numbers too, but not as good as it is for Ones. 
Um, and here's how that works. You get up in the morning. Uh, the first thing you do, at, like you get coffee and glasses or whatever you need. And I encourage people to use wide rule notebook paper and a number two pencil. And you just sit down uh, and start writing. And you don't worry about what you're going to say. You don't worry about spelling or punctuation or anything. You just write. The goal is to not pick up the pencil. And after you've written three pages, you stop and you wad it up and throw it away. And then you go on with your morning. And it's key to get rid of it. It's not something that you want to keep. And it's like emptying the trash. You just wake up with trash thoughts. It seems like a lot of these practices are about emptying for ones. I, and you talk about them uh, when we talk about ones in anger as part of the anger triad of that pressure cooker. And it seems like it's the same way with this, with a pressure buildup, that it's a release for them. It is. And once they write it down, that's that's processing so they don't have to keep doing it, which is really, really helpful for everybody, including the people that they share life with. Yeah, you get to cut the evening down to 20 minutes. No, 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 it's still 30. 30 in the evening. All right, so <laughs> twos? Twos, um, just like you, Travis, twos get all whipped up when I say they're thinking repressed. And they push back and say, what are you talking about? I think all the time. And I say, yes, you do. And if you watch yourself, you'll find that about 80 to 85% of your thinking is about relationships. It's just ridiculous. And so you too need to recognize and own that there are a lot of things to think about that require thinking that don't have to involve relationship, that don't have to be relational. And you need to know that that overthinking that you do about relationships the person that you're thinking about that you're in relationship with is very likely not thinking about you, not thinking about the last encounter that you had together, just not doing that. And so one of the things that's really helped me um, is to always be trying to learn new things. So I think one of the reasons that I've done as much deep work with the Enneagram as I have as a two is because it keeps me engaged so that I'm not caught in that trap of wondering if my four children are okay and if their spouses are okay and if the nine grandchildren are okay and if the fact that Joe left quickly this morning means that he's mad at me or that he's not mad at me. It, like, it stops all of that nonsense for me to think about something bigger than that. And I think that's one way I would talk about it. The second thing that has to happen sometimes is I just have to check in. Like, you know, Joel, sometimes I just look at you and say, are we good? Like, is everything okay? And that means that I've been relationship thinking and I've made up that we're not okay or that I've done something or something. And then I run with that and it's a discipline to stop yourself. You and I, when it comes to this, I think is the biggest gap for between us as far as what makes us different? Yes. Because my thinking probably is logical thinking 100% of the time. And that's not, that's not healthy. And bring, thinking about the relationship, thinking about the other people that it involves, not just uh, what's maybe best for the situation, best for me, or even especially as a parent now. 
I've got to bring up that feeling side that you have uh, in helping my kids in their situations because, you know, logic and children, that's a waste of time sometimes. It's a total waste of time with some children. Yeah. But so on the other side, though, there are times with you where you'll be, you know, we'll be flying somewhere. You'll be really processing. I'll be listening. Mm-hmm. Stuck on an airplane with me. <laughs> and then you will ask me for my thoughts on it. And I'll say, do you really want to know what I think? And then I point out all the things that are black and white of, in a kind way, saying your quote unquote thinking about this makes no sense. Here is this and this and this. Here's this. Here's proof of this. Here's why this has happened. Here's what is going to happen next. Yeah, we we just had that experience, in fact, this week. Authors have a tendency to check their Amazon book number to see where sales are. And the lower the number, the better. And one of them was up a little. And um, I also had a, got my yearly report for book sales and one month was down just a little. And I just made up that my career was pretty much over and that I wasn't really a good writer and uh, all of that. And I, ca- I called you, I was in the car and I called you and you said, well, now I, th- I think we need to back up. You know, you're not a, you're not a one. Is there another way to say you're not a one trick pony? I, I was trying to find one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I didn't really want to be a one trick pony, but I, it, it's like you have more than one avenue for teaching. That's good, right? Mm-hmm. And so then we talked about the fact that I teach, and I'm a public speaker, and I have a podcast, and I'm an author, and we have a center here where people come. And it once once that was on the table, and everything was in perspective, which I think, and I think I'm saying this for the first time. I, I, I've never heard you say gaining perspective. That's for, right. Yeah. And that's it. Look what we just uncovered. Because for ones, twos, and sixes, they're not thinking based on pers- uh, an appropriate perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, we all need a different perspective to get ourselves back to productive thinking. Right. So maybe verbal processing is looking for that perspective. And maybe if we really want somebody else to chime in, we have to discipline ourselves in terms of verbal processing when we don't really need to. Mm -hmm. And the other people need to be quiet until you say, I do want you to chime in. Yeah. Cause it's not about wanting help. It is about wanting perspective Mm -hmm. actually. That's different than mine that I can trust. And, and here's a, here's a big thing. And I, man, I want to sound as respectful as I can be. So when I was younger, not as a child, but a younger, young adult, that can be, I could misconstrue your looking for perspective as sometimes woe is me. Yes. Martyring. Yes. And I think other people will see the same thing in twos when it's not that. Just like you say with, with me as a seven, it's not pouting. It's not that. That's, right. It's not martyrdom. In this scenario, it is, I'm mm-hmm. trying to get to the, the thinking about mm-hmm. this. And I can't get there, or I would have done it without using exactly. my mouth. If I could get there, I wouldn't have to verbally process. Yeah. And then one last comparison. Whitney would love for me to talk more 
about what I'm thinking about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in part, that's because she's who she is. Because dad is a nine, and I would love for him to talk more about what he's thinking about too. Because that's comfortable for us, for Whitney and me. Mm -hmm. Okay, sixes. That one's a little trickier because sixes take in information with thinking, but they don't use thinking to make sense of that. And so they're both thinking dominant and thinking repressed, which is just an interesting place to be for three sixes and nines. In terms of sixes non-productive thinking, it is about anxiety. It's about living in a culture where there's kind of anxiety and fear floating around everywhere, not being able to escape that because of your sickness and taking it on and, and planning for things that are very likely not going to happen. There's an episode of friends where uh, Ross and Rachel accidentally, they step out the door and their baby's right inside and the door locks. And so Rachel starts flipping out. Who, who knows what number she is? I'm not this dear Lord. This is not a what number yeah. are the yeah. friends characters, but she starts flipping out and she's like, did you leave the stove on? Is, is what if the window was left open? And so Ross, he goes, yes, you know what? I think I did do both of those things. And a huge eagle has flown in and <laughs> caught fire once he landed on the stove. And now his talons are picking up the baby and he's flying out the window. And she looks at him and she goes, you're going to feel awful if that happens. <laughs> that's great. That's really just great. A very... and, and that's a perfect, that is a perfect example because she can roll with that. And he just thinks it's silly. Yeah. It's just silly. And so. And, that's, um, and I'm so sorry. No. That's most of our responses to sixes. Right is yes that is exactly we're gonna this cement truck is about to really unopen on top of our entire car and then we're gonna get plowed from behind instead of well have you ever seen a cement truck dump cement on the car behind it right like that's not even a story it's just a could be and so i think one of the things that sixes have to do is avoid it could happen and i think sixes need to ask people who love them and who are in relationship with them to be patient with their unwarranted, unreasonable anxiety. Because if you're respectful with sixes, they'll stop. And if you make fun of them or if you're dismissive, first of all, that's just not a way to treat a human being. And it just exacerbates the problem. It doesn't handle it. And it lessens their trust in you. Absolutely. It's, when trust is already an issue. Yeah. I think one of the things, too, that, that sixes can do that's really helpful is uh, keep a journal of the things that they worried about that day and the things that they're concerned about. And you could do that every night in five minutes. For five minutes, you could make a list of what you worried about and what your concerns are and what you're planning for handling that. And then once a month, look back through the 28 to 31 days and see how much of what you worried about actually happened. And I wouldn't do it but once a month. Like you need to wait until the end of the month to look back. But ultimately when sixes do this practice, they actually get to look at 
two things, at least these two things. The world is really a safer place than I think or than I'm led to believe. And anything that needed to be handled, I handled. I, I did it probably not in accordance with the plan for how I was going to do it. But I was capable of handling anything that came along. And I think when you struggle with fear and anxiety, your fear is not of what's going to happen, but uh, I think you don't trust yourself to be able to handle it. And productive thinking is looking at all the things that you do handle regularly in fine fashion. And now we are on the withdrawing stance. All right, fours, fives, and nines. Their orientation of time, uh, all three numbers, is to the past. And that is a thing that keeps them withdrawing. They are all doing repressed. And the effect of that is over time a lack of self-assurance, a lack of uh, self-determination, a lack of self-confidence, a lack of initiative. It is a, a big loss to give in to being doing repressed, I think. So let's look at um, the fact that all three numbers are doing stuff. It's not that there's no doing, like there's thinking with ones, twos, and sixes. But their doing is often nonproductive for one reason or another. So we'll start with fours. And fours, because of how they see, which is very different from how other numbers see, it, it fascinates me to listen to fours just talk about a movie or talk about uh, a building or a painting because they see things that I don't see. And the other thing that's very unique that would spur them on to doing that isn't hooked up for them is they're comfortable with longing. And so if you think that through, their orientation time is the past they're okay with longing, and so they can fall into a place of, man, I wish I'd done that. It would have been so great. It, it could have changed everything. But I, I didn't get around to it, and that doesn't feel as uncomfortable to them as it does to other numbers. So fours, because of their um, ability and desire to see and appreciate nuance and texture and difference and color and structure and use more of their senses than the rest of us do. They often get distracted. And for a long time, I've talked about they, they focus on doing what they want to do. But I'm coming to believe after hearing more and more fours push back on being doing repressed, that it's deeper than that. Somehow it is a, a focus on using their energy to contribute something that isn't currently present or doing something that others are not going to do fully or in the way that they would do it. seems like there's also a level of the authenticity being a piece of that. Yeah. I imagine if there's this thing to be done 
and a four's heart isn't in it, they don't really want to do it. Right. Then and then they want to be true to themselves, and they don't do it. They don't do it, and the things that they don't want to do are pay the bills and empty the trash and buy groceries. All of those mundane things that make life work are the things that fours find it so difficult to give their energy to. And so they are doing. There's just a big boundary about around what they do. So fours, one of the things that you need to do is create a pattern. I, I used to say schedule, but I've gotten so many mean looks from fours when I say schedule. I'm going to go with a pattern now. And you need a pattern for your week so that you get the laundry done and you tend to your finances and you see to it that there's food in the house for whoever needs to eat and you uh, you check off the things that don't feed you, that don't give you joy. And you put them in a pattern so that you do some of that every day. And I think you're going to find what you're looking for in those things too. There, there's a lot of good writing from uh, saints and mystics from way back that the mystical is in the ordinary. So tr try giving yourself to that. You know how, how they say that there, there are people who do the things that they don't want to do, eat the food that they don't like to get out of the way so That's then right. they can really savor it. And then the opposite, Yep. it seems like fours are the, no, I'm going to do the things that I don't want to do last. Yeah. That's it. And what makes me think, again, the, the disclaimer we have to say every time, don't type your kids. Right. There we go. Our son, who we think is a four. Right. Eating a meal. It's all the good stuff gone. Yep. And then it is 45 minutes or, right. you know, consequence time of not doing the other part. Whereas our other children. Get it over they with. Get it over with. It's very interesting to me to think about uh, my friend Carolyn because she's still, uh, and she's in her late 70s, and she still tells the story about having to finish her milk at dinner and she hated milk. And she said her parents would say, you're going to sit there till you drink it. And as a five, she stubbornly talks about, I would sit there for 45 minutes for an hour, not not drinking it, and then it just got hotter and hotter and worse and worse. So it's um. That's how BJ was. Yep. And yeah, he, a, he 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 last outlast y'all. Oh, I mean, absolutely. It would be, be a room temperature milk sitting there in front of him. Everyone's in bed. Yep. Just looking at it. So and then, as a parent, you you give up on that tactic. Yeah, you do. Perhaps not soon enough. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That was a lot of my one wild and precious life. So, uh, um. So there is a stubbornness in fives that uh, either gets it done real fast, which is its own kind of stubbornness. I'll show you. I'll eat it all in two bites. And the other kind of I'm not eating it and you can't make me. But there also is in fives a lot of planning to do. And I think if we apply what we know about adult fives to children who aren't drinking their milk is I think they're planning to drink it. Like I, I think they have a thing going through their head of I'm going to, I'm going to drink it 
the next time the clock chimes. I'm going to drink it before the other kids get to turn on the TV. But it's just I'm not going to drink it right now. I'm just not going to do it, right? So I think adult fives, when you grow that up, they plan to do, but they don't do. And they make big plans to do big things that they then just, yeah, I was going to do that, but that never, uh, I never had time. I never really got it done. You know, um, I have a friend who's five, a five who's always wanted to garden, but preparing ground for a garden, gardening, pulling weeds, getting vegetables, and it's just, it's too, too much. I think my favorite one is the person who was going to write a book. Yeah, I have a friend who was going to write a book, and he got a new writing table first. And then he got a certain kind of paper. And then he couldn't write it till he had a certain kind of pen. And then once he's got the table and the chair and the right paper and the right pen and the time to do it, he decides that he's going to have to have a picture window because he can't think unless he can look out and see out. And, you know, at some point, you know, there's never going to be a book. It's just, it's not coming. There's not going to be one. So I want to say for fours, fives, and nines that I think you're at a disadvantage that is also an advantage, and that is people know when you don't do your stuff. You get caught quicker not doing than you do not feeling and not thinking. So fives, uh, one of the things that you need to do is discipline yourself in terms of resource, uh, in terms of gathering resources and gathering information and gathering knowledge before you act. You tend to take everything immediately to your head and think about it. And when you do that, then you have to um, know too much to satisfy yourself before you act. So a good example is my friend Carolyn wanted to redo her backyard. She moved to a new house. She wanted to redo her backyard. And uh, she was going to have to pull everything out first, and she worked very hard to pull out everything she could, and then she hired somebody to come in and pull out all the shrubs and the things that needed to go that she couldn't handle herself. And then she started deciding what to plant. And she would go to weekend events where they were teaching what kind of soil and what parts of Texas are best for growing certain things. And then she went to a seminar on companionship planting and what to plant with what and how much mulch do you need and should you do your own mulch. And by the time she did all that, the work that she had people come in and do clearing out the back, it had all grown up again because she had to gather too much information before she was willing to act. And so fives, you got to let that go. You have to trust that a limited amount of experience and a limited amount of information is enough for you to move forward with doing. And then you just have to buck up and do. Nines. We, we have a particular um, plethora of nines in our family, it seems. And so we get to watch them all the time. None as much as... I watch uh, Joe. The can I, hardest. Can I chime in with a funny story sure, for sure, this sure. morning? So I look at Dad today. It's we're in the middle of May, and uh, the Reverend is teaching on centering prayer in October. And so I look at him and I say, "Hey, you know, later 
you're teaching Centering Prayer, and you know we're it's in Los Angeles. Quick little plug, everybody, Centering Prayer, Los Angeles. But you're teaching Centering Prayer, and you know it won't be at our center. So anything that you're going to need made copies of and that kind of stuff, we'll need to have done before then. And so let's go ahead and start this conversation right now. And <laughs> that's right <laughs> for you to get me the material. And then I jumped right on it yeah. and said to him, now, you know, when Joel has asked you over and over and you don't do it, then he calls me to get me to get you to get it done. And so, he, w- he wasn't even mad. He, oh, no, he just knows it's true. <laughs> yeah. It's absolutely true. Nor is he offended because he knows he won't get it done if we don't kind of <laughs> spur him on. The, the difficulty, though, is that he's always doing something. Nines are always doing something. The problem is it's just not what needs to be done. Often. It's often not what needs to be done. And the other reality is they know what needs to be done. It doesn't occur to them that they should do it. So I I think there's a lot around, um, man, there's so much to do. Somebody ought to do that and somebody should do that and somebody ought to do that. And unless nines stop and think or ask, is that mine to do? Is that on my list? Then it's just, well, I'm going to do this now. And, and another huge problem is they're so easily distracted. You know, I'm convinced that a lot of our children who are nines are being diagnosed with ADHD because they're distracted by what needs to be done or about what could be done. What's the story of the person, I think they were talking about their dad or something, that if a horse like walked by... That's right. Um, I read in a book one time, and it's an author who teaches about writing, but I can't remember her name at the moment. And she said, if my dad was sitting on the front porch and a horse walked by, he'd just get on it and ride away. And that <laughs> I, that's kind of it. It's just, wow, I think I'll go horseback riding. I think I'll do this. I think I'll... It's it is fascinating to watch. You know that could explain you. You always talk about how you know if Jesus were to show up and say follow me, that Dad would he would just get up and go. That's I right. think that's more. Maybe it's less devotion and religion. And, and it's faith. just the next thing. It's just the <laughs> <laughs> that's good. That's good because the story I've been telling all these years is it really hurts my feelings that I have to remind him Jesus didn't say. You and the kids. Get Suzanne and the kids and follow me. So you can sleep a little bit easier yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. It's just another distraction. Jesus came, and so I just went with him. And you're welcome, Dad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he owes you big for that one. All right, and some solutions for nines. I um, don't know nines who are effective in doing what there is theirs to do who don't make a list, who don't keep a running list of... These are the things I need to do. And I don't know nines who are effective at home and at work who don't authorize other people to help them know how to prioritize things. I I prioritize for dad all the time. And Becky, who is dad's administrative assistant, prioritizes for him at work. And there's not anything wrong. If you're a nine, there's nothing wrong with asking for that. Because you don't see things based on priority. The example I use all the time is that if Becky wrote down everything Dad has to do in a week on index cards and laid them out on a table, they all look the same to Dad. He, If he walks up to the table and sees all of them as a nine, 
they just all have to be done. So he would just take whatever one's right in front of him. And Billy, who is married to my oldest daughter, is also a nine. And he says in response to that, you might as well turn them face down. They never show themselves to me in terms of priority. All right. Now to the aggressive stance. There you go. I, it, it's, I wish we were videoing right now so people could see you pumping up there. It's funny. I, earlier when you're like, you know, each stance pushes back, I feel like probably get the least amount of pushback from the aggressive stance that they're all like, yeah. That. Yeah, that's true. I'm not burdened with feelings. It doesn't slow me down. <laughs> it's not keeping me from getting stuff done that I need to do. Is that how you think? <laughs> I'm, just spe- I'm speculating. Uh, yeah, you know. just a speculation. Yeah. All right, so three sevens and eights are feeling repressed. So now I want to back up again because I think this is a real important point, and I want to say that I think it is easier to get away with not thinking than it is to get away with not doing. I also think it's easier to get away with not feeling than it is with not doing. And I think there is a particular nuance in the aggressive stance to threes, sevens, and eights being feeling repressed, and that is that they all have already named feelings in a way that suits them. So um, I'm going to go backwards with this one, and I'm going to start with eights. And eights are feeling repressed, but eights don't do anything they're not interested in. So they're passionate about everything they do. And they substitute observing their passion as that was a feeling and that was a feeling and that was a feeling when actually it's just a, an expression a lot of a lot of energy around something that they're interested in. Eights um, are very expressive. And that can look like feelings. So let me use my language which is not everybody's. And my language around feelings is that emotions like anger and fear and happiness are external expressions of internal emotions. So when someone feels joy, they usually express that externally as happiness. And feelings are inside of you. And threes, sevens, and eights know how to express themselves once they grow up a little bit in appropriate ways at appropriate times without having the feeling that's behind that. And they get away with that except in close relationships. And that's problematic. Secondly, um, eights are always on to the next thing. And they are not relational with most people. They're relational with the people they love deeply. They're relational with their families. They're relational with their close friends. But they're non-relational out in the world. They're doing what's theirs to do and trying to do it the best they can. And that's also a disconnect from feelings. And so growing up, eights generally set any kind of tenderness aside because it didn't feel effective. Instead, it felt threatening. And they felt like people who showed a weaker side of themselves 
we're going to be expected to follow and they only want to lead. And feelings are messy if you grow up in that understanding of how things work. So for eights to be able to um, understand their own feelings more, demonstrate more feeling in relationship with other people, they're going to have to, first of all, slow down. Secondly, they're going to have to give themselves to a process of being patient with other people expressing feelings. Not get through it, but give themselves to that process. And they're going to have to find an arena, usually it'll be with people they trust very much, to express their more tender side so that they can learn to, at appropriate times, show that tenderness outside of that arena. It's tricky. Sevens, um, you have a half range of emotions, so you think you've got the whole thing. It's like, why be sad when there's all this to work with? Uh, Or why be down when there's so much in the future that could be different than it is right now? And so I think sevens have to work very hard, first of all, to accept and embrace the fact that they actually have a half range of feelings, not a whole range. I think an important second part of that acceptance is once we have accepted that that is true, then accepting that 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 is a problem. Right, right. It's like, so what's wrong with that, Mm -hmm. right? And, And I'll tell you, I also think for sevens and eights, part of the difficulty you have is feelings require that you slow down and you just don't want to. And you don't see it as effective. It's like, what is this going to get us? How is this going to make things any better? And so, uh, Sevens, I think you have to learn to do more than just dip into sadness or dip into even anger. You even reframe that into a positive somehow. And I um, would suggest that Sevens and Eights need to put themselves in positions once a month to do some kind of giving or volunteer work in uh, a circumstance that you can't fix. One of the things that I remember you as a child uh, beginning to have some real feelings about, you had a friend named Andrew who had a brother who had special needs. And you were very taken with that reality of that story of Andrew's brother. The interesting thing is you weren't mature enough to have feelings for the brother, but you were mature enough to feel some softer, more softer, sadder feelings with Andrew about his brother. Do you remember that? Yeah. It was like it was still once removed, but it was beginning to take the boundary away just a little bit so that you could have some tenderness around all of that. And I think in some ways, sevens have to wait for life to deal them a hand that they have to feel. There's just nothing works. And there's no way around it. And then I think you're not afraid of it anymore. You know, people don't think of sevens as being in the fear triad. 
And I'm convinced that one of the things you're afraid of in that triad is sadness. Well, we had to, uh, when he passed, Andrew's brother, for, I forget what, for what reason, we had to carry him out of the house. Yep. The hospital or the, or it was, couldn't, I think it was maybe the size of the hallway yeah. or some sort of issue there. Yeah. Then I was forced to do that. I was not a volunteer in that. And <laughs> there's a way of life forcing you to do something. And yeah. Do something. And I hadn't thought of that in years until just now. But I think one of the things that happens is that because, because the Enneagram is wisdom and because life is really good to us in the whole um, opportunities like that come along and we can look back and know that it was something we needed at the time to learn the lesson we needed to learn. What do you do to bring up feelings besides hang out with me? Oh, yes. Besides that. That's so helpful. Being a parent has helped a lot. And I, so the solution isn't go have a kid. Right. But <clears throat> even throughout my life, there have been large stretches where I've been insanely selfish and self-absorbed. However, in all the stories that I can think about when I did bring up that side, it was for people that I loved. And so when I say right now, you know, with, with children, with my children, that comes up with Andrew and his family doing that. When, uh, a woman who, uh, Sam Panders, when her husband died, like I drove from Arkansas mm -hmm. to go to the funeral and, and did that. Mm -hmm. uh, I've got, I'm blanking on like one or two other instances where it's Seven's rise to the occasion for people that they love. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's got to be some sort of a way to channel that because we're so future oriented, mm -hmm. we forget about those times. And so I think that's the thing to, to not forget. It's, we talked about this earlier mm -hmm. that it's, I don't know. Do you know where I'm trying to go with I that? Do. So here's what I, here's my language. I think those opportunities made it possible for you to learn to give yourself to a fuller range of emotions and know that you would be okay. And I, think that's grace. You know, when people ask me to define God's grace, it takes me five or six hours because things like that, I think, are true grace. So when dad had his heart attack, you weren't leaving the hospital, period, because of your deep relationship with him. And it's grace that keeps you there, right? And so that you look at it and feel it and deal with it and deal with me dealing with dad. Or, mm -hmm. right, all of you had to do that. The other thing I want to say, uh, I think about threes, sevens, and eights in, in this whole reality, is I, I think you all have to discipline yourself to stay present to things that are charged with emotion. It's, it's like stay instead of go. Mm -hmm. Be quiet instead of fix. Don't offer a solution until somebody asks for one. 
Don't look for an end around. I think you have to learn to discipline yourself to be present to what's happening. Like I have to discipline myself to be logical about things that are happening. Threes. Threes are in a very unique position uh, of all nine numbers, I think, because they take in information with feelings, but they don't use feelings to make sense of that information or to decide what they're going to do. And that means that they are uniquely put together to read people and read situations and kind of know what needs to be done. But then they have, a, it's like a switch and they have a way to just flip off feelings and then get to it and not be influenced by the feelings of people along the way. It's a, it's quite a thing, and I think that's why so many threes are so successful in business and dealing with large groups. And I, I think a high percentage of pastors of really big churches are threes. You know, they can read the feelings, but they don't get lost in them as they build mm-hmm. and grow the church, right? I think of the three numbers, three, six, and nine, I agree that that's the one that people have the most confusion about right. and questions about. And I don't know the order that these will air, but I really do think that that uh, example, we ta- we just got to speak with Rachel Cruz. Right. And that just, I thought was such an incredible example to everything that you're saying. So she, she's a three. And you said to her, I forget the context of it, but huge props on, she's the daughter of Dave Ramsey. Huge props on being Rachel Cruz and not Rachel Ramsey Cruz. Right. And she told the story about when they were meeting with publishers for their book, uh, Smart Money, Smart Kids, or something along those lines. And one of the publishers said to said to her, uh, "Hey, you know, we're going to do it as Rachel Ramsey Cruz." And she w- she started going with it. She was like, "Yeah, that makes sense for the book." and then her dad stepped in and said, no, her name is Rachel Cruz. That is what it is. She changed it. She's married to her husband. They are the Cruises. She is no longer uh, Rachel Ramsey. And then Rachel said, well, you know, it's not a big deal. You know, it, it's going to help the book probably if we do this. And it was not thinking about even her emotions because she said that, yeah, she wouldn't, after stepping back, she would not make that choice and when thinking about her husband's right. feelings, et cetera. But in that moment of addressing the issue, feelings did not come into play. That's right. And I, and yet there were feelings all around right. it. It's a perfect example because there were feelings before, during, after, but not right there in the decision-making. And I, I think that uh, means that threes and sevens and eights bring a lot of objectivity to the other six numbers. And I think this is a, a just, maybe we'll do a whole show sometime about this, a whole podcast about this. But I think we need to look at what the other stances offer us so we know where to get it. So you know that I intuitively know when I need to be logical that I come to you and Joey. I don't go to Jenny, who's a nine, and BJ, who's a four. And when I know that I'm being illogical, 
I call Jenny because <laughs> I don't want logic from you two, right? Like it's like, I'm, I'm not looking for that. Thank you very much. <laughs> and I think we do our lives that way, but I think we get in the pattern of calling on the person who will tell us what we want to hear instead of being disciplined enough or knowing the other people well enough or understanding the Enneagram well enough to call the person who will tell us what we need. Mm -hmm. What is something threes can do? I think the more, I think as threes grow up, they learn to set aside feelings quicker. And I think there's this intuitive sense that the quicker the better. The less time I feel, the more I'm going to get done. I think later on, they learn generally through relationship with a feeling-dominant person that they're going to have to hold on to feelings just a little bit longer, enough to not just know what's happening but relate to what's happening. So I think a good question they ask is, did I stay with that feeling long enough to relate to the people involved as opposed to just managing or handling or problem-solving? Uh, like sevens and eights, threes need to be present to uh, things and situations that they can't fix or control. And I think all three numbers, but threes in particular, need to follow up experiences with other people by asking how they felt. You know, once three set feelings aside after they've read the situation, they don't go back and get them. And I think that's very helpful. Did did you feel heard? Did you mm -hmm. feel good about the outcome? Not just did I solve your problem? Awesome. That I thought that was a great rundown. That's, good. That's, if that's, you think it's good, I feel opinion. good. I I feel very good about this. Well, and I think that it was a fairly logical discussion. <laughs> I think it addressed many, many, many questions. So keep them coming in. and I hope so. And be curious about stances. That That's the gold of the Enneagram right there. And if you uh, forget the week on top, top of my head, but stances in Los Angeles in October, come see us. <laughs>